we got a great show for you today. We have App Harvest CTO and former Root AI CEO and founder Josh Lessing on the show to discuss robotics and farming, climate change as an accelerant for sustainable solutions, and raising money by my syndicate. We were able to invest in Root AI in less than a year. Uh, they got bought by App Harvest, providing a multiple on our investment in a year. Amazing. Uh, and now we have these shares in a public company. Absolutely fantastic. But first, before we get to that interview, we have a we have a handful of great news stories. Public education bureaucrats in California and Virginia are killing excellence in our schools, especially in the STEM area, science, technology, engineering, and math. And AWS is dealing with bureaucracy issues inside of their company like Apple has recently faced. And Google was just fined half a billion dollars by France due to uh, not being able to negotiate with publishers for the rights to indexing their news stories. Plus, I'm going to talk about some products and services that I am interested in right now, uh, including a license plate reader. Stick with us. This Week in Startups is brought to you by Fundrise provides access to diversified portfolios of private real estate to all investors with their industry-leading, easy-to-use platform. Sign up today at fundrise.com slash twist. That's F-U-N-D-R-I-S-E dot com slash twist our crowd helps you invest early in pre-ipo companies alongside professional vcs if you're interested in investing you can join our crowd for free at o-u-r-c-r-o-w-d dot com slash twist and in brokers startup insurance program helps startups secure the most important types of insurance at a lower cost and with less hassle. Save up to 20% off traditional insurance today at Embroker.com slash twist. While you're there, get an extra 10% off by using offer code twist. Okay, in our first news story, uh, I want to talk about killing excellence in public schools. We've seen the story come up a bunch. Now, what does this have to do with this week in startups? Well, we are an industry built on excellence. And in some cases, people in science and STEM, uh, math doing extremely well and then starting companies. But this is an overall story that I think is really important because it goes to the heart of America and what America is about, which is uh, a meritocracy, a competition of ideas, a competition of performance, and people striving. And what's happening right now in our public school systems is really tragic. We're trying to take competition and excellence and rewards and meritocracy out of the public school system. And it is going to be a disaster for this country, according to almost any logical person. So let's break down this story and talk about it. Because I think it's super important. There are two stories here to cover one's in California, one's in Virginia. And you've probably heard of the California one, you might not have heard of the Virginia one, which I think is actually more interesting. Both of these are along the lines of addressing inequity, not inequality inequity. And doing so by lowering public school standards. Now you remember what my bestie Chamath said on the all in podcast, and I'm just quoting him when you hear a public official tout the phrase inequity run for the hills. In May of 2021, California's Department of Education drafted a new framework for K through 12 math education. Now according to an article in reason.com, which we'll link to in the show notes, and I'm quoting here, the draft of the framework is hundreds of pages long and covers a wide range of topics but its overriding concern is inequity. So here's the quote from the article. The department is worried that too many students are sorted into different math tracks based on their natural abilities, which leads some to take calculus by their senior year of high school while others don't make it past algebra. 
I would be in that latter group, shockingly. I was an underperformer in school. They literally wrote on every report card, you know, performing below his ability. And obviously, since then, I've corrected that and tried to perform above my ability, but I had a rough start. But even with my rough start, not getting to calculus, I never dreamed that the kids who did apply themselves should not get to take calculus. California's solution is prohibiting sorting until high school. In other words, they want to keep gifted kids in the same class as everyone else until at least ninth grade. Now, if any of you went to school in America who are listening to me, public school, which I am a product of the public school system until eighth grade, uh, when I uh, was getting kicked out of public school, and <laughs> went to private school, because uh, I got in too many fights, shocking. The idea that people would not be in a track with other kids who are at their performance levels means you're going to have smart kids sitting in class who are going to be super bored. And then you're going to have a group of kids who are slowing them down who are going to be feel super guilty about slowing them down. This framework is claiming that learning calculus in high school is overrated, especially for gifted students. This is ridiculous. Uh, obviously, learning high end math and physics and, and these concepts leads to people having the ability to think in incredible ways and to push the envelope for humanity. A lot of the great entrepreneurs I know came from math, calculus backgrounds, and physics backgrounds. Not because those things necessarily apply, but because that type of thinking allows you to think critically about systems and architectures and how to deploy solutions in the real world. Let's put a pin in that for now. Here are some quotes from the framework, and you got, really got to pay attention here because it's really subtle um, and pernicious. Here's the first quote, all students deserve powerful mathematics. Okay, we agree with that. We reject ideas of natural gifts and talents. Wait, what? Okay, we agree. First, first part of the sentence, all students deserve powerful mathematics. Sure. But we reject, we reject the idea of natural gifts and talents. Do these people have these have these people ever been in a classroom or worked with children before? Of course, there are people with natural gifts and talents. There is such a range in humanity of gifts and talents across human beings that it's, it's actually what one of the most delightful things about the human species is that some people can sing and others can dance. Other people can run a four minute mile or five minute mile. Some are good at martial arts. Others are good at mathematics. Viva la difference. We do not need to um, accept this idea that there are not natural gifts and talents. Of course, there are natural gifts and talents. Um, an important goal of this framework is to replace ideas, I'm quoting here, of innate mathematics, talent, and giftedness with the recognition that every student is on a growth pathway. Hold on a second. They just said we reject the ideas of natural gifts and talents. And then they say, with the recognition that every student is on a growth pathway. Okay, wait a second. If students are on a growth pathway, they're on different parts of that pathway, that would mean that there are natural gifts and talents that put them somewhere on that pathway. Some people might be further along in that pathway. I am not going to be dunking a basketball at five, eight and a half at, to the ease at which Christoph Porzingis at seven, three is going to be dunking a basketball. And that's okay. That's okay. And there are some people who are just great and have the, the, the brain uh, chemistry or the aptitude or the motivation to become great at chess, whatever it is, and, and people can debate nature and nurture or, or any number of factors. But we're saying in one sentence that there is, we're rejecting the idea of natural talents and gifts, while saying everybody's on their own growth pathway. Another quote, there is no cutoff 
determining when one child is gifted or another is not. It's <laughs> completely wrong. Of course, there's a cutoff. You, you can look at performance and you can say, at this age, this person is in this percentile of math. Lich, I have children. When we go to school for their yearly or, you know, every six months and we check in on how they're progressing, they literally have designed if your child is doing math at this level or has a vocabulary at this level or spelling at this level or penmanship at this level, they are in this part of the bell curve in terms of, you know, they're in the top 4% of verbal ability or they're in the bottom third of mathematics. This is nuts. Who's running the California Department of Education? I'm in California uh, and I'm in a public school and literally we look at these bell curves and they tell you where you're child is so that you can take do an intervention what what kind of society are we trying to create here one where everybody is the same that's not uh, a good goal we want people to be different and to flourish and to pursue their natural gifts it's one of the great things about humanity is that different people can specialize and perform at different levels now in a related news story in yesterday's Wall Street Journal opinion page, uh, in an article published by William McGurn, who is a Wall Street Journal editorial board member, former chief speechwriter for George W. Bush, the article titled A PTA Purge of Asians, America's Top Public High School Shows Us What Discrimination Looks Like Today. For background, this is about Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Technology in Virginia, which is a school for gifted children, students. Uh, and they refer to it as TJ, Thomas Jefferson High. And it's America's number one ranked public high school by US News and World Report. So we are ranking the schools, <laughs> but we don't want to rank the students. Okay, well, at least California doesn't. Now in this article, in December 2020, I'm quoting the county school board changed its admission process replacing a rigorous race blind entrance exam with a holistic read subjective formula that included grades, but also put caps on the number of students each middle school could send to TJ. Hmm. Okay, a de facto limit on middle schools with high numbers of Asian American students. In other words, they're putting a throttle on this community, uh, taking all the slots in this number one school. The desired result has been achieved. Again, I'm quoting the percentage of Asian Americans admitted to TJ dropped to 54% this year from 73% last year. Whites, blacks, and Latinos all saw their numbers go up. So uh, again, in March, a group of concerned parents called the coalition for TJ sued, claiming the new policy violates equal protection rights guaranteed by the 14th Amendment. Pretty obvious that it does. Uh, based on the color of their skin, they are not uh, allowed into the school based on their ethnic origin uh, and their ethnicity they're specifically being targeted uh, by this pr pretty obvious um, and it's not the first time we've seen this uh, anti-asian american or anti-indian approach to education it's very interesting that those two minority groups are getting treated this way uh, and people are not up in arms about it in may they won a victory when a federal judge refused to dismiss their lawsuits everyone knows the policy is not race neutral and that it's designed to affect the racial composition of school judge Claude Hilton said, I mean, it'd be intellectually dishonest to say it, it does not, of course. One of the co coalition members running for PTA is Harry Jackson, a retired Navy officer who's black and whose son is a sophomore at TJ High. Jackson wrote an opinion piece for the Washington Post in March where he explained his position. When I see the effort to water down the admission standards to TJ, and let's be clear, that effort is largely led by paternalistic white liberals who are determined to help 
in quotes, minority victims at any cost. I see it for what it is. A tacit admission that they don't think black and Hispanic students have what it takes to compete on merit. And this is, I think, how a lot of people feel uh, that this white liberal movement is trying to lower standards and that maybe the people who they're trying to help don't want their help. More quotes from Jackson's piece. The student body is notably diverse with 79% coming from a minority background. But according to state and local education bureaucrats, that last point isn't good enough. Because as it turns out, and I'm quoting here, the school's population is made up of the wrong kind of minorities, Asian students. To be clear, again, quoting, as an African American father of a TJ student, I would also like to see more blacks and Hispanic students at the school. But if those standards are not making the grade, the problem isn't the standards. It's more likely the elementary school pipeline is failing to prepare them for the rigors of an environment like TJ. But rather than address the very real failures at preparing underprivileged students, Brad Band and his cronies now seek to gut the admission standards to get the racial balance they deem appropriate. Bra Brand is a reference to the Fairfax County Public School Superintendent Scott Bra Brand, who led the charge to water down the admission standards for TJ. In other words, we're failing up until eighth grade to prepare these students to compete for these slots. Therefore, we're going to change the admissions to that school and lower the standards when we should actually be saying let's demand more of our teachers let's demand more of our administrators let's demand more of our education system let's invest more let's have after school programs if we need to let's have tutoring one-on-one -on -one sessions that people could opt into why on earth would we throttle high performers in order to not focus the blame where it belongs if we are not preparing people early enough, let's go there and do some work there. You do not need to lower the standards, you know, on the back end where, where people are taking calculus and going to based on merit, the number one public high school. And Gary Tan, friend of the podcast here, who is a product of California's advanced math classes, and who is an entrepreneur turned investor, uh, and who is Asian American, he recently tweeted about this article, we must improve access by black and Latino families to better K through eight school resources to lift achievement by high school age. The answer shouldn't be an unjust shortcut eliminating elite guilt over racial achievement gaps by eliminating the tests that expose them. Think about that. It's a really well put. There is a war against testing, against merit, against excellence. It is what cuts down on social mobility. Without access to advanced math or the SATs, I would have never escaped my working class childhood. We kill the ladder up if we allow ideologues to burn down merit. And this is absolutely the case. The teachers union and the education bureaucrats are way too powerful. And they're setting us down the wrong path. And we must stop them. And we must keep America competitive. Because our contemporaries and our competitors in the world, the communists in China, and other places, uh, they are not thinking in this insane way that we don't want to have excellence. They're thinking, how do we have more excellence? They're thinking, how do we push people harder to achieve more, to solve society's problems more, to play a bigger role on this planet we call Earth? Now, this sounds incredibly hyperbolic, but the human species is at a crossroads. The human species is at a crossroads right now. The communists in China are going to win, or the West, the democracies are going to win. And the way we will win is by having the greatest education system in the world that motivates and drives people to achieve more and more specifically 
in the areas of math, science, engineering. This is where technology, the future is at stake. And we're literally going to hand it to a bunch of communists in China who absolutely have no problem with putting people on different tracks based on how they perform. And we want to remove performance. We need to be doing the opposite. We need to be looking at the full stack of education, every single grade, every single school, every single student, and saying, how do we create a more competitive environment in education? We don't have competition in education. We need to have massive competition in education, and the parents need to demand it. Whether it's privileged students or it's uh, underprivileged students and parents who are fighting here in San Francisco against an insane board of education. But let's not damage the next generation by removing standards. Let's inspire them to achieve and reward them for doing so and give them every chance to live an excellent, awesome life with performance and competition at the core of that. They need to perform and compete. That's the real world. If you're a parent, what are we all doing as parents? We're preparing our kids to inherit this planet and to compete to make it better and solve the world's most important problems, not to be average. Does anybody out there aspire to have their child be average? Or do we aspire for our children to compete and to be excellent? We want all of them to be excellent. And that's not at the cost of anybody else. That's our, that's our choice and that's our mission as parents is to, to give our kids whatever opportunity they want and, and to push them to achieve. So anyway, I'm sorry I'm infuriated by all this. That's the end of my rant. Studies have shown that a truly diversified portfolio needs more than the traditional mix of stocks, bonds, and mutual funds. It should also have some exposure to private real estate. Studies have shown that portfolios with an allocation to private real estate generally delivered a better risk-adjusted return with more annual income and lower volatility over the past two decades. Why is that? Because of its consistent performance through multiple market cycles. With Fundrise, this level of powerful diversification is now available to you. Fundrise provides access Access to diversified portfolios of real estate to all investors with their industry-leading, easy-to-use platform. Whether you're looking to add stable cash flow via dividends or you prefer long-term growth through appreciation, Fundrise makes investing in real estate as easy as investing in stocks, bonds, or mutual funds. Fundrise's team of real estate professionals carefully vets and actively manages all of their real estate projects. And with their easy-to-use website, you can track your portfolio's performance and watch as properties across the country are acquired, improved, and operated via an asset updates. So here's your call to action. See for yourself how 150,000 investors have built a better portfolio with private real estate. It takes just a few minutes to get started. Go to fundrise.com slash twist. That's F-U-N-D-R-I-S-E dot com slash twist. Fundrise.com slash twist. Let's go on in the news. Amazon Web Services and their new CEO are facing a lot of bureaucratic challenges. For some context, Amazon's Web Service uh aws which is amazon's cloud computing platform is at the core of amazon's profits uh just taking a look at the numbers aws amazon's web services this is not you buying books from them this is their server farm which they rent out to startups and big companies they're on a 54 billion dollar run rate in 2021 this is extraordinary in 2020 aws was only 11.5 percent of amazon's total revenue 45 billion uh, for AWS and 386 billion in total for Amazon. 
and including Amazon Web Services. However, AWS accounted for 63% of Amazon's net income in 2020. In other words, it's highly profitable. Amazon's net income was 21 billion in 2020. AWS's was 13.5. So let that sink in. This giant business they have of selling books and third party products and cables is modestly profitable. But AWS has a massive ability to print money. And that makes total sense. One is delivering books at a very low margin in other products. And one is providing scalable computing and software platforms that you know, have uh, just a tremendous margin built in AWS is the top provider of cloud computing services in the world, uh, accounting for over 40% of worldwide public cloud infrastructure, according to Gartner, AWS recently hired Adam Solipsky as CEO to replace Andy Jassy, who is replacing Bezos as Amazon CEO, which is in itself, very instructive, the former CEO of AWS is now the CEO of all of Amazon. Solipsky was a VP of sales and then COO of Amazon Web Services from 2005 to 2016, before leaving to be the CEO of Tableau, a position he held until 2021. In other words, AWS won the day at Amazon and they're running the show at Amazon. According to an article published yesterday by the information, Solepsky might be returning to a different company than he left, according to the information preventing AWS from sliding into the bureaucratic sludge that has mirrored so many large information technology companies is likely to be one of the top challenges for Solepsky. Under Andy Jassy, AWS was run as a startup inside of Amazon with a frenetic pace of new product and feature releases. Anybody who's in tech knows that they just kept releasing every possible service as an API. And as it's reached this massive scale, it's become more difficult to keep up the pace and to limit bureaucracy, according to this article. The quote, although the number of employees is a closely guarded secret, more than 75,000 people listed AWS as their current employer on LinkedIn, making it roughly the size of Cisco systems, the 36 year old computer networking giant. In other words, this is a huge, huge group of people working on this. Greg Pearson, a longtime Intel executive joined AJS in 2019 as a VP of American sales. And according to four anonymous sources that previously worked at AWS, Pearson brought in a culture of much more paperwork filing and administrative work turning off some of the salespeople that enjoyed a startup like culture at AWS under Andy Jassy. This is typical, you know, uh, the the bureaucrats come in, and they bring their systems from the previous company, and the pirates, you know, and samurai running the previous, you know, in a previous style are now being replaced with bureaucrats. However, other employees cited a need for more scalable structure at AWS, which has resulted in incredible revenue growth over the past few years. 2018, 25 billion 2019 35 billion they added 10 billion 2020 they add another 10 billion 45 billion and in 2021 they're on that again adding 9 billion 54 billion run rate so every year consistently they're adding 10 billion now as a percentage of revenue obviously adding 10 billion to 25 is a 40 percent increase and adding 10 to 45 billion is only in the neighborhood of a of a 20 percent increase so you know, the the percentage is slowing down, but the raw number is still a very large number. And if the infrastructure is largely staying the same, that means the profits are going up. In other words, they probably if they're adding $10 billion to their run rate and revenue are not adding $10 billion in expense every year, they're probably adding a fraction of that. And that's the scale uh, and the beauty of running a software business or even a cloud business, which has some infrastructure cost as it's not fixed cost exactly in that, you know, when you create a piece of software, if you create slack, it's largely a fixed cost business, isn't it you write the software, 
you have 500 developers writing the software, if a 1000 companies use it or a million companies use it probably doesn't change the number of engineers you have, it might change on the margins, how much bandwidth you use. But those are de minimis costs in the grand scheme of things. So how can companies like Apple, Google, Amazon and others maintain a strong pace of innovation while still managing 10s of millions of uh, employees? Is it even possible? Well, all in episode uh, 37, we broke down Antonio Garcia Martinez's Substack article bad Apple about Apple's lack of innovation and crippling bureaucracy. Here's a two minute clip. But he I thought his most salient point was Steve Jobs would not have been able to exist yeah, in the yeah, Apple yeah. that exists today. Right. He would have gone run out of Apple is what he said. He would have been canceled. How much innovation is there really at Apple now that the that the genius who created it is gone? And he he ends his article by saying, when Apple launched the Mac computer in 1984, you know, they famously ran that Super Bowl ad that featured a solitary figure flinging a sledgehammer into a big brother-like face spewing propaganda at the huddled ranks of some drab dystopia. And then AGM said, as the tech titans nowadays resemble more and more the harangue figure on the screen rather than the colorful rebel going against the established order. Whether it be hiring policy or free speech, Silicon Valley has to decide whether it becomes what it once vowed to destroy. The reality is the great genius who founded Apple is long gone. It is run by HR people and woke mobs. Uh, it's run by a supply chain manager. Exactly. And, and, and so there is no more innovation there. They are just a gatekeeper collecting rents. And, you know, Freeberg, you're right to raise the issue of what's going to create the most innovation. But the thing that's going to create the most innovation is letting entrepreneurs create new companies without needing Apple's permission. I will tell you something. I think that over the next decade, because of exactly what you guys said, that Apple is run by managers who don't want to see loss, but aren't driven to gain, you're going to end up seeing a uh, Amazon in particular and Apple likely as well, lose to the likes of Shopify and Square and Stripe. Shopify, Square and Stripe are all formidable threats to Amazon over time. And now that Bezos is actually mm. going to step out, hmm. and it is going to be run by a bunch of managers, and you have these founders of these three companies still running all three of those businesses. And all three of those businesses are going to be incredible competitive threats from different angles on Amazon. That is where innovation wins. So if you look at Freeburg's point, Shopify, Square and Stripe, these are incredible companies with incredible momentum. And is AWS going to be able to compete on payments, or for e commerce platforms, uh, with Stripe, Shopify and Square, probably not. And what if those companies start adding other cloud services, you know, we're going to be in for a dogfight here. And that's one of the great things about our industry. It's just a little bit weird for us growing up on Google and Amazon and Facebook and Apple to start thinking about another set of companies disrupting them. But Microsoft and IBM were in fact, uh, disrupted by Google and Amazon. So it's one of the great things about our industry. In terms of founder authority, which I talk about a lot. Now that Bezos is out of Amazon just this past week, you know, Amazon has lost that founder authority, which means things are going to change. Um, people are not going to make as many bold bets, because they will be thinking about losing their job. When you're the hired gun CEO, whether you're Sundar, or you're Tim Cook, or, you know, Amazon's new CEO, you don't have the founder authority to say, I'm going to do this. This is my company. I named this company. I hired the first 10 employees. This is mine. I have founder shares. And everybody is going to have to deal with my decisions, even if they're mercurial, even if they're quixotic, even if they seem insane and bold. But Apple, as Sachs joked, is run by a bunch of HR managers. 
And that might be why, let's be honest, the best product they've produced at Apple yeah, in the last 10 years since Tim Cook's been running it, probably AirPods. <laughs> and I'll be honest, AirPods now, I don't know if you've tried Pixels, uh, AirBuds, whatever they're called, the Pixel uh, version from Google, they're kind of better. In fact, they're much better. And they're $99. So I think, you know, those mean Apple's not going to be a, a great company and not going to print money. But I do think if you're looking at Apple for massive innovation and risk taking, you're not going to get that when they're run by a supply chain manager. Literally, Apple is run by the supply chain manager, Tim Cook. Now that is not a dig to Tim Cook. Tim Cook is a lot of the reason why Apple was able to hit incredible scale. But you know, where's their AR glasses? Where's their new car? You know, where's the new, you know, incredible product? The, iMac, the new iMac? Yeah, it's nice. Yeah, the M1 chip, pretty innovative. You know, this stuff is great, but I, you don't see the bold bets that we would be looking for. You're not going to see a Cybertruck, which now has a million reservations. You're not going to see, you know, an AWS launch inside of Amazon again, I don't think. And that's okay. You can manage these companies to excellence uh, defined as printing money, not defined as changing the world with new products and services. A and that's okay. Okay, it's time for another R Crowd deal of the week. Right now, you can join R Crowd's investment in Ripple. According to the deal memo, Ripple is an established innovator in the rapidly growing multi billion dollar dairy alternative market. Ripple offers alternatives to milk, protein shakes, creamer, and more with proprietary tech that lowers impurities for a superior taste and better nutrition. You can get in early on Ripple and other unique opportunities by signing up for free at rcrowd.com slash twist. By the way, did you know that rcrowd investors were able to get in on some of the best IPOs of 2019 and 2020? They benefited from companies IPOing like Beyond Meat and Lemonade, and some of rcrowd companies have been acquired by buyers like Intel, Nike, Microsoft, Oracle, and Uber. With rcrowd, accredited investors can invest directly and easily in startups early before they IPO or get bought. As you review deals, you have access to our crowd's investor relations team who you can talk to directly on the phone about your personal investment goals. Again, the R crowd account is free. Just go to rcrowd.com slash twist. That's O-U-R-C-R-O-W-D.com slash twist. All right, moving on some big antitrust news in France uh, from the AP France's competition regulator fined Google 500 million euros almost 600 million US dollars on Tuesday for failing to negotiate in good faith with French publishers in a dispute over payment for their news the agency threatened fines of another 900,000 euros around a million bucks per day. If Google doesn't come up with proposals within two months on how it will compensate publishers and news agencies for their content. Google had $182 billion in revenue in 2020. So you know, paying a fine of a million dollars a day is not a big deal. What they would more likely do is stop Google News inside of France. Uh, this is the second largest antitrust penalty ever in France. The largest was an Apple fine of 1.1 billion euros, where Apple was accused of working with wholesale distributors to divide up customers and not compete. Google's fine is uh, the second major one they've received this month in France. Earlier in July, Google settled a $270 million fine for favoring its own ad auction platform. So um, this idea that Google is giving preferential treatment to their ad auction 
or their Yelp competitor, you know, Google Local or Google Flights or Google Shopping. You know, each country is going to come up with their own concept um, of what's allowed. And I think what you'll see is companies like Google, just like Facebook threatened to not allow the publishing of news stories from France, I'm sorry, news stories from Australia to their social network, and that freaked everybody out in Australia, you're going to just see these big tech companies just say, fine, we'll do it your way. Uh, We will no longer index Le Monde in Google News, etc. I do think that Google News, um, that scrape publishers article and curate them into a feed, that should be a licensed product. And I think Google should just come up with something fair for this. If you're going to show, you know, uh, a snippet of a news article, and increasingly, Google will use AI to pick the most important information in that article and then represent it. Why not just come up with a, a fair CPM, a cost per 1000 views for that, as opposed to just taking it and uh, supposedly Facebook has paid off New York Times with some payments for uh, their content. People don't like to talk about that. But that might be, I think, an eight figure deal. And it might be uh, people say why Facebook uh, hasn't been treated as difficultly uh, by the New York Times. I, I don't know if that's actually correct. But, uh, you know, I went through this myself running Mahalo, uh, where I created a comprehensive search engine built by humans was kind of Wikipedia plus Google search and Google just took us out of index Google does not play fairly. Um, they uh, have sharp elbows and they will fight um, and they'll win in most cases. And if they get a speeding ticket like this, so be it. I mean, that's the way they look at it. It's a total black box. They will not tell you what's happening. And Rupert Murdoch, you know, from Fox kind of got this right. He pushed Australia and he pushed France and other folks to really pay attention to this. Um, because Google makes a lot of money selling ads and not giving publishers a cut on Google sites. And Google will say, well, you can just not index us. And that's kind of a jerk move. We want to be indexed. We just don't want you to take the snippet. So there should be some middle ground here. And Google is going to have to really figure out a fair way to mitigate this. It's the same stuff that happened in Australia where Facebook and Google were told they need to compensate publishers for news and Google is complying. They agreed to pay nine entertainment co one of Australia's largest publishers more than 30 million in cash annually for use of his news content. So uh, taking the other side of this is a tech blogger Benedict Evans who worked at Andreessen Horowitz for a bit. He says the shakedown continues. It's hard to see how making tech companies pretend to buy something that has little to no economic value to them is a path to sustainable business model. For newspapers, if you want a tax and a subsidy, be honest and call it that. I, I think it's fine to call it a tax if you want to index that content. And it does provide value. It just may not provide value directly. So Benedict is wrong there. You know, if you're, I think that's why Google News and Google Images don't have ads on them. The second they put ads on Google Images or Google News, those two specific services on Google, then you would be able to make this very direct connection. How much money do Google News make? How much money do Google Images make? Instead, what they say is we're just indexing. We're just indexing. We're not actually publishing the content, we're just pointing to it. And then you do a Google search because you're on their site. So they get the uh, revenue through the secondary uh, usage of their service. In other words, it'd be like getting it'd be like me playing a a television show for free in a movie theater and then making money off the popcorn, right? Kind of what's happening here. Somebody is like, Hey, we're, we're playing these movies in the movie theaters. But Oh, we don't get any value from that. We gave the tickets away for free. But if you look over here, you know, we are selling the popcorn in the front of the movie theater. That's a better analogy for me.
And so separately in the US, Google is being sued by 36 states right now, alleging that Google is favoring its play app store on Android, and removing other options for app developers to distribute on the platform and then charging what some people consider a high fee of 30%, which I don't consider that high of a fee, because I remembered in the package software days, you know, you would sell your chess master game to, you know, a computer store for $25, and they would sell it for 50. So you really were paying 50% in retail, or maybe uh, you were getting paid even less. But this is uh, going to be the trend. If you're only allowing uh, software onto your platform through an app store, like iOS or Android, um, I think that's going to be a trigger for this antitrust regulators. And there's a very easy way to solve it. Just allow people to click on a button to allow third party app stores. And then you can say we're not going to support your phone if you allow other rogue apps on here. So don't come to us for customer support. If you're using your iPhone and you start loading apps from some Chinese app store or some Russian app store that has stolen apps in it, like that, it will become the, the Wild West. The second you can put any app store on people's phones, it'll become like BitTorrent or spam or viruses, your phone will get hacked, there'll be nobody reviewing those apps, they'll be filled with, you know, all kinds of phishing scams and data scams turning on your camera, maybe, um, and uploading everything from your photo album to their servers and then doing ransomware. I mean, you'd have to be a fool to load some rogue app store. <laughs> because once they have your access to your phone, they've got everything, every photo, every location. I mean, it, it could get pretty gnarly. And that's why spy agencies love, love, love people having this device in their pockets, because once they root it, and they get their claws into your phone, they could turn the microphone, etc. You think that this is me sounding like a crazy conspiracy theorist. This is state of the art espionage. This is how it all works today. You can have the Russians, the Saudis, etc, hacking high target individuals like Jeff Bezos's phone with all kinds of software. And if you allow other app stores, where the apps are not reviewed, you are going to get demolished, you are going to have all your data stolen. I would never ever do that. Now do I want the ability to load an app from one of my, you know, investments, you know, through test flight, or maybe just at least have the option to do that. Maybe, maybe I would want that. But uh, you know, I have security concerns. I kind of like the idea that the app store is throttling the number of apps on my phone and doing some curation because I would like it to be safe. And I would like my kids iPads to be safe. But viva la difference. Some people want, the, you know, their phones to work like their desktop computers, where if you want to on your Windows machine or your Mac to load some piece of software that roots your machine and, you know, does God knows what maybe uh, records your keystrokes, you can go do it. God bless you. But uh, that's what will happen. And then people will flip their argument really quick. Every startup needs business insurance. And you should look no further than my friends at Embroker. If you don't have insurance, you failed one of the first steps of being a great entrepreneur. Embroker's technology saves you time and money. Prices are up to 20% lower with better coverage than the incumbents. And you can go from sign up to quote and purchase in just 10 minutes. I trust me, I've been through this for three decades of getting insurance. I'm getting old here, folks. And Embroker is quick, easy and affordable. And there's four types of insurance that are critical in the startup space. I know these like the back of my hand because I'm on the board of companies. And I see when things go wrong. And I see what the insurance can do 
in terms of decision making cyber insurance super important unfortunately because things are getting hacked constantly dno insurance that's if your directors and officers board members your senior employees do something dumb and you get sued let's leave it at that and eno that covers errors and omissions and that will help you scale because any major customer will say do you have eno if you want to close a deal and finally epl employment practices liability this covers harassment wrongful termination and more so to instantly buy custom built insurance for startups go to imbroker.com slash twist e-m-b-r-o-k-e-r.com slash twist while you're there you get an extra 10 percent off if you use the offer code twist please put in the offer code twist so they know that i sent you okay let's get back to this amazing episode before we get to the interview today just wanted to give a shout out to a product i love um, i'm holding it up right here these are anchors magsafe adapters for my iphone 12 as you know the iphone has a magnet on the back boom you put this on here you press this little button and you're now charging your phone this has been a godsend for me that's why i own two of them i've started traveling again i get these two things charged and then when i'm using my phone on an airplane or i'm in an uber uh i just pop this on and i keep my phone at 100 all day long which is just a great feeling it really does um because it attaches to the back of your phone it's it's no big deal you don't have to actually plug it in it's so fast and so easy um it's so great that apple is now releasing one anchors uh i think will always be better anchor is just this great company that i buy every new product this is how crazy i am about anchors products i go to the amazon anchor store and i look at what's new and i just buy whatever's new they have like a new nano um i think it's a 60 watt charger and i just buy whatever the newest thing they make is i i don't know why i'm so into accessories for electronics but it's, it's my engadget is coming back uh but this magsafe battery pack from apple uh this will be coming july 19th i also have uh from anchor my friends at anchor this stand which you can put your phone on and on your desk you can be charging and looking at your phone it's quite delightful and then it comes with a little pad here so i have my pixel buds which also are not magsafe so it's not going to oh actually it has a little bit of a magnet it might kind of falls off but this little stand here is also uh, allows you to charge so when you plug it in it's charging here so you can plug in your phone and uh pixel buds much better than anything from uh, apple in fact just to show you how great these are when you put these pixel buds which are only 99 bucks in your ear you just twist them in you don't even see them look how flush they are so when you're sleeping listening to this week in startups and all in you just go to bed and you just lay down and you don't even forget you, you forget you have these in i wake up with these sometimes uh, they, they obviously turn off uh when you're not using them uh, but pixel buds 99 bucks anchor battery pack no brainer max safe i'll i'll try the apple one but I i'm kind of loyal to anchor and then this anchor stand they're not paying for this i just thought it would be interesting on this podcast to tell you the products i love you can tell me the products you love on twitter or jason at calicanis.com and uh, maybe i'll promote them here <laughs> maybe we'll start doing unboxing videos here another product i'm researching that i think is really great is i've been thinking about safety for neighborhoods especially with san francisco where i no longer live but i do have a, a a property in san francisco uh that we have our office in right now it's like a live work loft i have uh, i may sell it if i move to austin or miami uh, but i still have it um and one of the things i've been thinking about is private communities and uh what do they call those gated communities i've always wondered about this i've been fascinated as a kid from brooklyn the first time i saw one in new jersey i was like this is crazy like you your community has a gate and they're like yeah, are you dumb? Like, have you never been out in the real world? I'm like, no, I haven't. I'm from Brooklyn. I, I thought everybody lived on a block. Like, 
with, you know, the houses in row houses next to each other. I never knew people had backyards and parking spaces and, uh, you know, this kind of thing. But I, I, I did some research on this and I found there's an API and an open source project for license plate reading because we had a bunch of burglaries uh, in the area where I live today. And uh, the way they found them was it was the same car coming in and doing, you know, afternoon, you know, run into people's houses and take their laptop kind of situation. Don't do that at my house. I have a gun uh, and security. So it would not be a good move. But people were doing this in uh, our little community. And so I was just thinking, like, why are we not? I wonder if we should be a gated community or, you know, uh, if they ever thought about that. And I was thinking about license plates because license plates are public information, right? And, you know, they're just they're out there in the public. But license plates, if you were to know, in my community, if I lived in, you know, this community on the north shore of Kauai, and there's one road in and one road out or a limited number of roads, if you had just a camera there, and you had people's license plates, you could make a database of every time somebody came in and out. And if that license plate hadn't been recognized before, it could send an alert that there's a license plate in the community that has never been there before. Now, this is super Orwellian. I, I thought, wow, this is really interesting. I wonder if there's any obvious, there's obviously privacy concerns, but it's public information. And there's an API to do this. And then I found this company, flocksafety.com. And they make a device for $2,500 a year. I got in touch with them. I haven't bought it, but I was just thought I would share it with you that I've been doing this research because I've been thinking about safety um you know when you have a family you start thinking about that when you have a home you start thinking about that when you see what's happening in san francisco and then i'm also into privacy and i was wondering if this product existed and it does they've created a camera system with a giant battery in it and a 5g connection and you can plop it on your property now if your property happens to be near a street and you have a driveway you could put it in your driveway and every car that goes by you can personally record every single license plate to make a database and know when your neighbors are leaving their house and when they come home as well as every other license plate and then if there was a robbery you could say there was a robbery on our block there was a break-in here's every license plate that came in and out not just that day but here's the pattern of every single one for the last year or 10 and then i thought i wonder if you could just upload a video on some regular basis from a nest cam or if, and then i thought well why doesn't nest just add this because nest has an outdoor cam and then i was wondering well if that's the case what if tesla built this into their cameras and when you're driving down the road it records every license plate or if there was an app and you put your phone on your dashboard you could be recording all this and then it, i just came to this conclusion like wow our privacy is an illusion people are actually doing this in the real world already and if you go to flock safety's website you will see videos of them catching people based on their license plate this is the world we live in today. This is why a lot of criminals are taking their license plates off when they do hit and runs in San Francisco is because they know the license plate might tag them. But this software also tells you the color of the car and the model. And obviously, if you're getting the license plate, there's no reason you can't take a picture of the person in the driver's seat. So uh, I'm going to be interviewing uh, the CEO Garrett Langley later this month uh, from Flock Safety. And it's a really interesting company. And I'm just curious what you think about this and what questions you might have for him in terms of privacy and safety and should this be allowed or not? I don't have exactly a position on it now. Um, I tend to think our privacy is an illusion and it's already been compromised because if this software is out there and it's an API and th there literally is an API provider for this now and there are open source projects, people are already doing it. And I bet somebody has an app somewhere 
that you can put on your old pixel phone and mount it to a wall or your dashboard and just every time you drive up and down the 280 or 405 in LA you could be tracking every license plate and know you know who's in what car it's kind of crazy when you think about it and uh, I'm just curious your opinion on it okay so let's get to the interview all right next up on the program we're going to talk about robotics and what jobs will be eliminated and how we're going to feed the world now I was at Stanford this morning I was in a class and somebody said hey what jobs are going to be eliminated and I said you know it's interesting cashiers like uh and cars and people driving trucks this is starting to happen already we're starting to see that some jobs which are mind-numbing and horrible <laughs> like standing on your feet all day and typing in somebody's order that's being replaced by people ordering on kiosks or on their phone and driving a truck for a living yeah there's i guess some romance to it uh, in some ways but i think most people would argue that's a really tough job to stay awake for 10 hours a day and drive down the road it's hard it's arduous you got to be away from your family self-driving trucks are coming when i saw this next company uh which my friend rob may introduced me to and uh, i had invested in rob's company i was like wow this needs to exist in the world why are we not using ai computer vision and all this technology robotics to go in there and just bing, pick raspberries and blueberries and blackberries without people having to be doing backbreaking labor on their knees all day long in the fields picking berries shouldn't this be done with technology well we were lucky enough to invest in a company called root ai and uh we invested in them about a year and a half ago or something like that and then i found out they got acquired it was one of the quickest uh investments to acquisitions we ever had so root ai got acquired by app harvest and i was going to have the the founder on the program to talk about the investment we made in this company and by that time the company was acquired uh and app harvest acquired root ai for 60 million in april of 2020 just a couple months ago for 50 million dollars and 10 million in cash so instead of having the ceo of root ai on today i am lucky enough to have josh lessing the cto of app harvest on hey josh how are you good afternoon congratulations on the acquisition we invested last year i think uh, last right? summer um almost a year so it was uh the end of july uh, of last year so uh, we're, we're just coming up on that anniversary now this was incredible we you know i heard the pitch from you uh and we met through rob may tell me what was the pitch of rude ai uh that i heard maybe we could share that with the audience uh and what you were setting up to do here with rude ai you know so at rude ai we were set out to transform farming you know right now farming is one of the major sources of pollution in the world it is delivering a product that does not, it's not easy to access. It's not as nutritious as it should be. And, and frankly, as we look at all of the challenges that come with climate change, the way in which we source our food is just broken, right? You know, if we're getting our food from all over the globe, it at a moment's notice, that supply chain, especially with fresh, can break down. Mm -hmm. So what I wanted to do with the business was pivot the world's food supply to a model where every single country had the fundamental infrastructure that it needed to feed its people. And that was going to require a bunch of technologies, including artificial intelligence, robotics, and, and, and greenhouse farming. And so I framed it as backbreaking labor in the fields. But in fact, I was wrong. It's not just about that. It's really about, hey, what if you could have blackberries and raspberries in your backyard being uh, farmed indoors and you're 
plan, if I remember correctly, was to sell the equipment to farmers. You were looking for farmers and you were going to sell them a solution. What was that solution? And what was the first iteration of it going to be? Yeah. So, uh, you know, the, the big signature part of the product roadmap was a robot that was universal, right? So, you know, what we've lost isn't access to, um, you know, one bespoke machine. We've lost the agility that comes from being able to pick any crop, see any crop, mm -hmm. understand it. Um, and so what, what we were building uh, and what we, we continue to build is a robotic system that can care for your crops. It, you know, the current iteration picks uh, grape and cherry tomatoes. It also picks strawberries, it pick, picks cucumbers, and it's built on a, a human body plan because the, you know, the aha moment is if you ergonomically structure a crop environment to be picked by people and you design the crop genetics to support the same, if you could build a robot that has the body plan of a person, and by that I mean, you know, the way in which the linkages of the arm are the same, uh, the extent of the fingers, de you know, finger dexterity, and, and frankly, robotic a robot's capacity to understand how to be dexterous, that we could develop an unbelievably versatile tool that facilitates harvesting, a very time-sensitive, mission-critical part of the farm, but much more importantly, could also start infusing farming with data, right? Farming is an unpredictable form of manufacturing where your most upstream process is highly volatile. Being able to have a robot there, understand what product is being brought in, and build every single workflow around that data creates tons uh, of new opportunities. And so that that was the value prop. Okay, so to unpack that a bit, humans have evolved as an agricultural society and species for some number of years to pick produce from the vine from the tree. And that process of growing is random in its nature, even when put inside of a, uh, a factory with, you know, pristine conditions and temperature and water, we still don't know where on the vine exactly the tomato is going to grow. So it turns out that making an arm that is similar to a human's and having a visual system similar to a human's and then building from that point forward is the optimal way to build a robot that can pick vegetables and fruits from the vine. Multiple crops, uh, quite Multiple specifically, crops. right? Yeah. So there is a certain amount you can accomplish in, in the plant genetics itself, how the plant structures itself. This is not GMO. This is just centuries of breeding. And one of the things you breed for is the ability to be, you know, have the plant be workable by people. And you can create infrastructure that ties up vines and trellises uh, branches. But I mean, there's a limit to that, as, you, as you're pointing out. So, you know, the thing that you're tailoring for, the harvesting is, is done by people. So making the robot akin to a human's kinematics and general kind of strategy and approach to picking is what allows it to go cross crop. And that's, you know... The fact that we're building a universal harvesting platform that facilitates so many different crop needs is in line with what you need the tool to be truly transformative, useful, a game changer. And, you know, what we were doing at Root and what we continue to do here at App Harvest is really push the envelope there and that, you know, ours is the very first robot to ever go cross crop, ever do multiple jobs at the farm. And we're working on continuously expanding that that functional envelope. And this is very analogous to a conversation to which I had with the CEO of a 
dishwashing robot, except that they made standard dishes because they didn't want the robot to have to learn to do all dishes. So they said, you know what, for the first version, we're only going to have these very specific plates, these very specific bowls with the specific magnets in it to just narrow the scope of what the dishwashing robot has to do. And that was Linda Poulet from Dishcraft Robotics. That was a great episode. I forgot the number of that episode, but you can look it up online. What you're saying is that was episode 1140 for those people who, uh, who are fans of the pod back in November of 2020. You've built a robot that could literally go into the cherry tomato fields, then go into the strawberry bushes. Uh, and the cherries might be growing, you know, five, six feet high, and the strawberries might be on the floor, whatever it is. And the same robot can do this. It can pick either um, either type without a hardware change. It just would be a software change or it would have to just understand the lay of the land. So just quite literally the lay of the land. So, yeah. So you you slightly uh, change the gripper, you know, in the same sense. It's the same theory of operation. But just like you would pose your hand like this for a cucumber and like this for uh, a beefsteak tomato, we, we change up the gripper in that way. But beyond that, it's software. And uh, I, I would say that there's a bigger, you know, when you look at these plants, you might think that they're, they're completely random and they're not truly, you know, a cucumber, a pepper, a tomato. These are all vine crops mm. uh, with similar kind of indeterminate genetics and trellising. Uh, when you talk about raspberries and strawberries, these are bush crops. There are anatomical features there that you can identify with an AI, kind of parse that environment, find a free path to approach the object and then land fingers on the object to orchestrate the pick. And so from that perspective, you know, building the system with the flexibility to really think about uh, vine crops all similarly, because there are a lot of similarities there, and think about bush crops similarly. I wouldn't say that it's boundless, right? Like, right. Um, there are things that facilitate the robot. It's uh, part of why it's such a good pairing with, with greenhouse farming and that the way in which uh, greenhouse farms are laid out is literally the same all over the planet, mm. which is confusing at first until you realize that you're building a massive indoor growing environment. You could be, you know, the one I have uh, not too far from where I'm doing this call right now is a 60 acre building. Uh, I've been in 200 acre buildings, you know, and these whole structures are designed from the ground up to support the plant's health, its biology, and the plant has very specific needs. So you go to facility after facility, and it's all running the same exact arrangement and structuring of the crop. So it does create a bit of a simplification, I would say, as far as, you know, the discraft comparison, the fact that we're focusing heavily on these highly sustainable structured uh, farms is our version of custom dishes. Uh, but at the same time, you know, these kinds of farms, you know, if you're getting a tomato at the grocery store now, odds are it's from a greenhouse and they're taking over the world's food supply chain in a lot of major categories. So leaning this into that a, environmental structuring is a big deal. And this is a good thing for humanity that we're moving towards greenhouses for our vegetables and our plants uh, and, you know, fruits because it's more sustainable it'll be higher quality and more nutritious? Or is this bad and it's better to have free range bushes everywhere? I'm sure there's some hippies somewhere who are like, this greenhouse stuff is terrible. I in reality, am I correct in thinking that the greenhouse because it's more controlled, 
and more productive is less on the uh, less impact on the environment? Oh, certainly. So, you know, it's it's all in how you formulate it, but you can get remarkable results uh, with greenhouse. So, we're using ninety percent less water. You know, we're producing about thirty times as much produce per square meter in one of these facilities. We're not, you know, we're not using any harsh chemical pesticides or herbicides because since you have this enclosed environment, you can actually have good bugs that fight the bad bugs. You know, you can bring in predatory insects that they kill off the insects that damage your crops and then that way not put chemicals on your crops. Wow, and so you can blood. even I mean, so I travel frequently to the Netherlands where a lot of this technology was invented and, you know, you can pair you know something like royal dutch shell and the you know the carbon dioxide effluent from one of its facilities and then pipe it into an agricultural corridor and use the plants for carbon sequestration they breathe co2 so why not pair it with the facility take its waste heat and its co2 make it more sustainable and you know fundamentally speaking besides the fact that it's it makes good nutritious food that can be made, you know, right now where, you know, where the farm I'm referring to here right next to this office, we're within, I, I think, one day's drive right now of about 70% of the U.S. population. So we're not trucking. And so, you know, all of these things really increase, um, you know, the kind of just sustainability score that we have here. And fundamentally, we have to go in this direction. There's so much volatility coming in the weather that is scary and it's dangerous. You know, living in a world where you cannot, de- you know, depend upon your food supply is is a pretty spooky one. Uh, over the course of my life, right, uh, I am now getting towards the end of my 30s and over the course and about one third of the world's arable land just disappeared, uh, not disappeared. There are very specific reasons of what we didn't do to prevent it. But, you know, these are farming facilities that don't require arable land. You, you put them down. The grow media is whatever you choose. You put it in a bucket. You can grow the, you know, the tomatoes. You can grow the strawberries in there. Um, you don't need to have amazing arable land. So you can grow this in the Middle East. You can grow this in China. You can grow this in wow. India, in the U.S. And people will have food. And it's a place that we have to go as a society. And I would say one of the things that really excited me about building Root is I've always had ambitions of making the things that I work on be meaningful uh, to the world around me. But often, if the thing that you want to build isn't aligned with major financial objectives of, 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 of big corporations, you know, it's hard to align what's the right thing with what's the profitable thing. And in this case, that's, that's, not, that's not the case at all, right? By building a distributed network of fresh You're actually creating a food infrastructure that is the perfect marriage between, you know, the way in which Amazon thinks about order fulfillment, the way which Walmart thinks about order fulfillment. So you're all of a sudden giving the biggest drivers in the restructure, restructuring of global commerce, the way they would want to get access to food, which is put the food facility right next to my fulfillment center. And for me, the fact that they want that. And then all of a sudden, Beautiful. we get to yeah. make it environmentally sustainable is, you know, a reason to really, you know, as an entrepreneur, so, break your pick and, and make it happen. There's another example of like, show me the incentive, I'll show you the outcome. If the incentive is wherever you're already shipping produce to restaurants and supermarkets, we were literally putting 
vegetables and fruits onto trains, I believe, then taking them to centers. And then those centers would put them onto trucks to then bring them to um, supermarkets and restaurants, etc. You're saying, hey, wherever that depot is for Cisco or whatever the, the, the distributor is, we'll put our greenhouse next to it. Yep. Is that what I'm hearing correctly? And, and that has to be the future of food. And it's something that is already starting to, to come into the foreground. Mm. And it's just a fundamentally better solution. You end up getting, first of all, more shelf life out of the product, right? If I don't have How to much move more it do you get? Because is it like a, a week for like something like strawberries or tomatoes? What is the time between when it gets picked and I eat it today? And then how does that change when you're doing it? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, a good personal example is I was reviewing the, the technology landscape of a produce company that did conventional. Mm -hmm. And I traveled to one of their farms in Mexico and, and, and picked some crops. And I have to say that in the field, that strawberry was quite good. And then I made sure to get the exact same crop when I made it back, you know, our office is in Boston. Eight days later, it hit Boston. Uh, the product was not nearly in the same condition. Some of it was damaged, rotted, uh, not particularly flavorable. And those eight days, all of that transit mattered. And one of the other really disappointing things about our current food supply, the status quo that we're trying to replace here is you know you design it when you breed plants you design it for trucking you're not designing it for nutrition you're not designing it for flavor mm -hmm. like those are factors but they're not like the dominant factor and in a world where healthy food is medicine it's what really you know i i focus on things i i worry about housing i worry about food and i worry about medicine and in a world where i can get you a sustainable farm that produces you know fresh that you want to eat mm. That's a big deal. So yeah, so capturing eight days back is a big deal in quality. Designing but what you're food, also saying is the design. Yeah, they were designing, designing for it to not get ripe for eight days. Am I correct in my guess? That yeah, they were so, designing to make it to, it to, to survive make... that transit is really ah. depriving the food of its quality. I mean, the way in which you used to get tomatoes is you'd harvest them, let's say, down in you'd, you'd harvest these outdoor uh, beefsteak tomatoes. You'd harvest them when they're practically still fully green uh you would gas them with ethylene to force ripening as on its way to market and the end result is not a product you want to feed to your kids mm. and we that was a miracle at the time because we could then get tomatoes anytime we wanted and we could have abundance and, and so the motivation wasn't completely bad at the time it was suboptimal now we can actually grow these the proper way and and either get additional shelf light out out of them or more nutrition but you've been working on grips i believe you were at mit is that right working on the grips or somewhere um so so i was in mit but uh, my gripper yeah. work started in at, at harvard Got uh it. long long time ago in a galaxy far away that was like the 2013 time period you were working on these grippers yeah. or something so i have a question for you is it the gripper technology that was the gating factor or was it the AI and computer visualization to understand, hey, that's a strawberry that's worth picking? Uh, or was it the AI piece to like get in there and operate around the, you know, leaves and stems? Or was it the gripper? What was the gating factor on this technology getting to market? 
Yeah. So, so it's definitely the AI piece. So, uh, so leaving Harvard, I, I built out a, another robotics company. And that is a robotics company that is really, really focused on the, you know, the mechanical engineering and materials of the gripper for, and that was in a case where, you know, kind of the Amazon problem, mm-hmm. uh, variable size, weight, shape needs to get into a box, infinite number of SKUs. Uh, for, for root, it was the exact inverse problem, which is, you know, these, a tomato is a delicate object, but like, it's not like one tomato is going to be the size of a grape and then one next to it's a basketball, right? Like it is reasonably regular. Uh, you need to have a lot of experience in how to grip. And, and that's something I've built over a long career in, in doing this. But, um, you know, really the new challenge was the artificial intelligence. And until recently, it just wasn't doable. Hmm. You know, both the, you know, the massive advances in convolutional neural networks and their applications to computer vision, that was enabling. The fact Explain that, that for a second. Unpack that. What does that mean in plain English to a neophyte? So, you know, the modern world of computer vision can really is really robust in that, you know, you're creating these training data sets, you're taking photographs of an environment, you are annotating, you're circling the objects of interest. Let's say you're looking for cars, you're circling images of cars, and you're feeding those images where a human said where the cars are into a complex statistical model that teaches itself what are the fundamental attributes of cars. And if you put, you know, unoccluded images of cars, it's just, you know, easy to see whole car, uh, it will find whole cars. If you add to that data set semi-obstructed views of cars, it'll get good and it'll start to understand how to also find semi-obstructed versions of cars. You know, if you take a look at some of the older versions of, of computer vision, uh, where it was really kind of top-down creation of the different filters that found objects, uh, they just would easily break down in, in practice in complex environments. So they were really good at, you know, if I needed to pick an object off of a conveyor and put it in a box, and it was a well-singulated object that had nothing else around it, it was up and it was up against a simple background, it was a white conveyor, um, you know, you could, and maybe it had a logo on it where you had the ability to look for the lettering you, you could take that previous generation of computer vision and make it work in that application, but you throw a pile of those objects into a bin and it's many different objects and suddenly the environment is hyper complex and, and those, those vision algorithms, the older ones, would fall apart. Uh, the modern generation of computer vision that everyone's talking about is able to take on highly complex real world applications and it's quite remarkable. I would say that the another major thing that has changed is being able to have computers that you can use at the edge. So when you're in a farming environment, um, you know, you're, first of all, usually far away from, from Wi-Fi. Uh, you're far away from the, it's not like you're going to plug into a wall jack, right? Um, you're often surrounded by plants, which have a way, you know, all the water content in those plants also have a way of blocking signals. So the concept of like, I'm going to take an image at the robot, I'm going to pass it to a computer in the cloud, and I'm going to run a model that is not, for the most part, a tractable solution for real-time artificial intelligence required for picking. The fact that I can buy system-on-module computers with chips designed for running these models, and they barely consume any electricity, super important for a mobile platform. I can just buy these things, they're cheap, uh, and I can put them into my robotics platform. Like That's a complete game changer. It's the reason why you're seeing, um, it's one of the reasons why you're seeing 
autonomous driving become a, a ever more practical application of artificial intelligence? That is the reason why we're seeing a lot of hardware being put at the edge of computer platforms. We had a company mm -hmm. on the program that was building cameras for checkout lists, um, you know, shopping, and they put th there are people making cameras with graphic cards in them or putting you know racks in the back of uh the stores so that they can do that computing computer vision in real time and that all comes from gaming correct like if the gaming cards had not been 60 frames 120 frames per second and that increasing crazy resolution we would have never had these nvidia cards or whatever cards to be able to do this correct it's funny um, because where I started to experience those graphics cards was early in my career when at, at a point in life where I was very misguided and I wanted to be an academic. And, um, you know, there's a lot of I was doing a lot of spectroscopy and uh, protein biophysics. And all of a sudden, uh, there were a couple of really brilliant groups that realized you could start running a lot of hardcore physics on, um, you know, PlayStations. And, all, ah. and, that, and then you started like you know, slapping together a bunch of PlayStations, you had a supercomputer and it was earth shattering. And that was in my, my old field uh, a million years ago. Uh, but, you know, that that same kind of aha moment that it's a fundamentally different kind of chip in the way it 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 runs these calculations in there. Um, and the kinds of math that you do for for artificial intelligence is really well mapped to those chipsets. It's it just makes everything move bleeding fast. And now you have the economic um, incentive of cryptocurrency and Bitcoin and hash. I is that compounding at another level that people are buying all these cards to do that? Oh, I mean, I love the fact that people are doing all of these custom uh, custom chip projects, and that we're getting ever more specific kinds of chips are running. You know, different parts. Uh, you know, different kinds of you know important calculations that you would find on a robot. But yeah, the other applications you're talking about as well, um, being able to run that all at the edge, uh, with very, very little data passed along, uh, like a sparse amount of metadata passed along to the cloud or, or passed along to a user. Uh, it just it allows you to put these, uh, put these algorithms in places where they touch the real world, and solve dramatically more interesting problems, or at least more interesting to me. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the M1, which I'm on a Mac mini M1, which is like the super cheap computer, it and then I have the M1 MacBook, um, you know, laptop, and it's amazing. They literally made a chip designed to run a browser. Essentially, they were like, "How can we run a hundred browser tabs without your machine crashing, without slowing it down, and without burning the battery out?" It seems like that was Apple's number one, you know, criteria: is how long did your battery last? And now the battery lasts on some of these laptops two days or twenty five, like more than you could ever need 20 hours of battery life all because they're doing these the the number of components is going down and the functionality and the specificness is going up i think that's why tesla did their own you know circuit board as well for their self-driving program as opposed to just slapping nvidia's in there correct yeah and it's becoming dramatically more attainable to to actually make these custom chipsets so you know i mean it's it's a combination of different things right i had a background in robotic dexterity for food which is a weird specialization but you know here i am 
um, you know, the the convolutional neural networks that were coming out for computer vision that were remarkable, these chipsets, the ability to use cloud resources to train your models, and just so much uh, just, you know, back end infrastructure for deploying all of this, you know, it just, it makes it faster to innovate. And it's the reason why you're seeing, you know, applications of artificial intelligence in the real world all the time. By in the real world, I mean, like, if it's a robot driving by you on a street, that's in the real world. And the thought of, you know, you know, people talk about software, software in the world and all of these efficiencies that have been garnered from software, but they've lived in realms where the entire workflow was digital, fintech, sure. Mm. Um, online, you know, you know, many aspects of online commerce up to the point where you have to do the order fulfillment, sure. The idea that you can push this technology out into physical environments and do physical work is just mind-blowing when you think about the the possibilities and to be living at in this moment in time is remarkable. And for me, you know, I, I have a particular dream, right? Like if going back to the theme of it's shelter, it's medicine, it's food, if I can be part of a project where what the world gets is a building that infinitely pumps out food and it's easy to use and it is reliable, we've solved one of the biggest problems that humans have ever had. We're on the cusp of massive um, abundance when it comes to food, aren't we? I mean, the cost savings from having robots pick this from it being in a factory that doesn't have to deal with weather doesn't have to deal with bugs. And we don't have to travel from Mexico to Boston to get your strawberries. I mean, this is, is it going to make of if you had to guess 10 years from now, adjusting for inflation, and everything, how much cheaper will food be or more abundant? Is it is it going to be a dramatic lowering of costs? Or just higher margins for the people who sell the food or it's going to stay sideways? So as far as lowering your costs, I'm not sure if I'm able to to fully wrap my head around that in the sense that, um, you know, I, I think one of the major issues that we have now is lack of access. Mm. You know, the the ability to distribute food production and be able to make it accessible to different communities is one of our massive challenges. And, you know, we're looking at a huge increase in the global population over the next 30 years. So demand is going up. And then as many societies are becoming, uh, have better infrastructure, people are becoming more, more affluent and by affluent. I, I mean, some crazy form of, of wealth. I mean, like being able to be able to build a good life for their families, our diets are becoming more complex, our calorie counts are going up. So, you know, the amount of food that we need to produce, it, it's access, right? Mm. Um, you know, we're, we sell our, we could sell our product for more here at, at the company, but, but we don't, it's a matter of principle. Um, you know, so we're keeping what we make accessible. Uh, but, you know, for me, it's really just expanding supply and protecting that supply against the changes that, that are coming. And, you know, we're really spearheading this mission, you know, kind of look around and I think not enough people know that our food supply is, you know, tragically underserviced by technology. There are things that people who have engineering and science degrees could commit themselves to and make meaningful change. And we, we really want to be the ones who lead the charge. Well, it's not only is it under, not only have we under applied technology to this specific problem and category, um, we ha don't have the redundancy, 
and the resiliency in the supply chain, we only have 30 days worth of food. And I, I believe, you know, Freeberg mentioned that statistic on an all in podcast recently, David Freeberg, my friend, that the world lives on a 30 day food supply. Now, I don't know how exactly accurate that is. But I would think for vegetables, it might even be and fruits, it might even be less. Like, are we might be living on two weeks or three weeks supply of fruits and vegetables. In which case, if we have hurricanes, rainfall, extreme weather, uh, you know, a pandemic, and every, let, let's say the pandemic was really, you know, Ebola, like God forbid, and people died from going to work. We, we sent frontline workers, we sent people into the fields to pick food, they they weren't given the option to stop working. If it was truly, you know, a deadly pandemic, you know, 30 40% of people who got the disease died. And people just said, I'm not showing up for work. I'm not bringing food to your house. I'm not instacarting. I'm not door dashing. Screw it. I'm staying home. We would have had a total breakdown of society. Now, if we had redundant food supply in every city, it would be a lot different. Am I correct? Exactly. Uh, not to be completely sappy here, but I have a kid. Yeah. And a big part of, of kicking off fruit and a big part of this acquisition had to do with thinking about what is the world she's about to receive. You know, I, you know, it's a term you'll hear go around water wars, right? Mm. You know, the idea that we are going to fight over these resources well before they run out. The second that people start to fully understand how fragile our ecosystem, uh, ecosystem is, I don't mean environmental ecosystem, I just mean the our infrastructure. Yeah, our infrastructure is, yeah. um, when people start to piece that together because they see disruption, it's not going to be a, a good world that we live in. And so, you know, could building ugly. this business. Yeah. And, and so, you know, one of the, so I, so Jonathan, who is the, the CEO here is actually, I met him just at the founding of Root and he shares the same vision. Hmm. He wants to, you know, he wants to improve the environment. He wants to create sustainability in our food supply. And he wants to bring jobs and wealth back to communities, which is what we're doing here in Kentucky right now. And all of this can be accomplished with this tech stack. And it has everything to do with building a better society. And the acquisition here allowed us to really pull in the entire product roadmap, which is more than just robotics. It's artificial intelligence to minimize how much you know energy we use and inputs we use to grow the same amount of food. It is, you know, it's understanding how all of the processes in a farm work, the human processes, the robotic processes, the growing processes, and using enterprise ML to deliver more food at, you know, with less waste. It has to do with, you know, all sorts of different innovations that we can do in the supply chain as well, to make sure that the goods that we move are, are more effective. And, you know, being able to, to work with a company that that was very well capitalized, had dedicated group of investors that were looking to do something massive, global scale, agricultural technology products. You know, that was an ability for us at, at Root to really leap forward uh, by over a decade in, in our development timeline where I don't think time's our friend right now. Hmm. It's really interesting. We, we had this conversation on the last episode of All In, where I was just saying like, you know, we sometimes the solutions are right there. And they're just not implemented or implemented at scale. And I was saying like, why don't we just put a nuclear these new nuclear reactors, the small ones near the ocean up and down the California coastline uh, with desalinization plants, and then you've got the energy for the desal without 
and I know desal ha and there there is an economic there's an environmental impact to everything. Nuclear has an environmental impact, and of course desalinization does. But global warming is having a colossal impact on the entire planet. To your point about we're screwing up our farmland. So if we implemented just a three part plan here, nuclear desalinization and what you're doing with factory, I don't want to call it factory farming, but farming organic farming inside of factories is that the way to refer to it uh, i i like to think of it as organics farming inside of large robots you know okay. these buildings Robotic are like 60 farming. acre yeah. robots themselves yeah if we just did those three things we could really change the redundancy resiliency and, and the effectiveness of um our supply our infrastructure here in the united states and all that technology exists right now we just don't have the leadership and the will to implement it and it's up to entrepreneurs to make it so affordable and undeniable that society says okay fine fine you've made it so obvious now and so cheap and affordable fine we'll do it but we don't have we shouldn't be struggling with this it's like the mrna stuff like we had mrna for 20 years we just didn't have the will to put it to work it's incredibly frustrating that society is throttling the technological advancement. And let's face it, if they if the government if our government gave your company a billion dollars to go deploy this across the United States, you would have no problem building and what does it cost to build one of these robotic farms like $10 million, $25 million? So a bit more than that. So they, they are uh, considerable pieces of infrastructure. But at the end of the well, day, it's, it's not what is one of these 60 acre you know, you could probably cost. do for, you know, between a million and $2 million an acre uh, for some of these facilities, depending upon how you want to do the math. Right. So $100 million. And what does that feed? How many people does that feed? I mean, it feeds cities. You know, that's right. that's what's important about this. And, you know, we've had incredible support here in, in the local community, both at the, you know, the community level and the government level. And you know, so the goal for the company is to make 12 of these farms by 2025, which to me is the real MVP. You know, we're, we're going to be making leafy greens. We're going to be making strawberries. We're making tomatoes. We're going to be making, you know, all sorts of crops you can grow in a greenhouse. And we're plunking it down right in the middle of 70% of the U.S. population Amazing. and demonstrating what a fundamentally different food supply looks like. And I'm also proud to say, and this is rarely ever comes from the mouth of a roboticist, we're actually doing this in a way that expands jobs, you know, considering that we're so? importing, yeah. well, considering that we're importing a lot of this food from abroad, these are jobs that are oh. already left and we're bringing them back here. Ah, and, and the I other see. cool thing is, you know, you talk to any we're farmer. We're reimporting jobs. We're, we're reimporting jobs. And, and also you talk to any farmer and the work on the farm is never over. You know, you could be in one of these facilities and when you have a million plants and the outcomes in the farm go up, the more you can individualize care, you know, the fact that a robot is doing one job means you actually can make time for another job and it massively increases the performance of the crop, the sustainability, the infrastructure. So, you know, the company stood up a, a massive uh, growing environment in the middle of a pandemic and employed a community. And that, you know, being, you're saying, you know, it takes entrepreneurs to do this work when others won't, and then build a, a community and a movement around that success. It's really crazy, too, because if you think about what this sort of um, large scale agriculture, I don't know if there's a term for large scale agriculture, what did it get us? It got us dwarf wheat, it got us soybeans and corn and corn syrup. 
Like, if you wanted to scale agriculture, it meant narrowing the big ag, right, is I think the term big agriculture, big ag got us like a very narrow set of scaled calories, corn, soybeans, wheat, turns out these are not great for humans. It turns out leafy greens and the green stuff and the vegetables and the berries, they're better for you, but they don't scale as gracefully. But now with AI, now with training the data sets, now with robotics, we can have a, a better, uh, everybody could have a better set of calories. Is that correct too? Exactly. You know, if you look at, you know, like a lot, a lot of the row crop, right? These are crops that were automated. When you think about a tractor, that, that means it's mechanical automation. I mean, these mm -hmm. days they do fuse it with, with digital innovations, but that's automation. Uh, no one has been able to, to automate some of the most important crops for your diet. And, you know, that, that's something that we fundamentally need to change. Mm. Leafy greens, is that on the menu? Or is that just something that's, you know, we've already got a robotic solution for that? Because are, are leafy greens picked or are they just cut? Uh, so, so you can cut them and we're building out automated leafy green facilities. And it's really nice because normally, you know, you're shipping this in from Arizona, California, uh, Mexico, which, you know, if you live in Washington, DC is a little bit of hike. And yeah. for leafy, you know, those are very, very perishable crops. Mm. And at the same time, they're also crops that when grown outdoors, you have recalls, right? You have recalls around uh, right. e. dangerous bacteria. And the idea that you could grow things in a way where you're not putting anyone in jeopardy, which is, is a real thing that we have to contend with now, that's a game changer as well. Yeah, you guys don't get the arugula like we have out here, man. Oh, God, the baby arugula here. I get this watermelon salad at the Greek joint by me. Oh, my that, Lord. That is something I, you know. Watermelon arugula salad with feta. Oh. Yeah, I mean, the further you get from where your food is grown, the the quality just goes off of a cliff. Yeah. And so as someone who's a bit of a foodie uh, myself, and I've traveled the world, you know, in every kind of a food product you can imagine. I mean, there's also just the fact that it's it's nicer to be enjoying what you eat and, and being yes. able to make wildly good products, not a luxury. They're, they're a freaking human right. And that's that's part of the goal. Beautiful. It's beautiful. If, if every think about it, like if poor kids, you know, who don't have a lot of money are right now eating like factory farmed meat on, you know, bread and that, and that's their diet, cheese, bread, meat, and they could be having a beautiful arugula salad with great tomatoes, some berries in their Greek yogurt. I mean, it's all about Greek food anyway, but you could, <laughs> this could be so much better. Um, oh, by the way, just for folks who were wondering, the, the company uh, was Standard Cognition. Jordan Fisher was on episode 977 doing the automated checkout using computer vision at the edge. Uh, and then uh, Leela Jana, uh, tragically uh, from Samosource, who passed away, was doing training of data sets uh, with people across the planet, including in Africa, and, and people training the data sets. But when you train the data sets, do you use like some outsource people to look at cameras and just circle the strawberries and say, pick this one, pick that one? How do you know which strawberry to pick? So yeah, Size, you have color, what? Um, so in the case of strawberries, it's, it's color. It's also morphology. So for example, what does morphology when, mean, so you, you don't get to see this at the grocery store, but when a bee does an incomplete job of pollinating a flower, you end up getting these massive, like empty cavities in the strawberry. The strawberry looks, ah. uh, very, very unusual. 
And so, you know, it's mm. it's morphology, it's color, and ultimately what it really should be is bricks. You know, that is the sugar content of the strawberry. We're not talking about a Snickers bar here. We're still talking about a healthy product. But, you know, if you could start moving, you know, what your standards are, you know, picking to a flavor profile, getting that perfect wow. acid balance and sugar load, uh, you know, strawberries should be candy. These should be things that your mm -hmm. kids are, you know, pulling out of the refrigerator because, you know, they're looking forward to it. And that is something that you can achieve with this kind of technology. Uh, I'm looking at strawberry morphology right now. You got the uh, oblate, you got the gybose, you got the gybose conic, conic, short wedge, long wedge, knackered, long conic. What's the right shape? What's the right morphology for the most delicious strawberry in your mind? I mean, there, is there, that's is a this long important thing is they're, the they're all delicious. Ah. Um, you know, What's but, the most delicious? Is it the uh, conic? I feel so, like the conic. So I, I, I personally love any really tiny strawberry. One that really had, you know, that that's Goibos one of the better ways to get conic. a high sugar content uh, in the berry. Um, they're often um, much, much harder to bring to market in a way that's mm -hmm. economical because of just when, when the berry is tiny, quick, right? they swell quick and they swell quick. And there's also like just how, um, how much effort it takes to harvest them. But when I see those on a grocery mm -hmm. store shelf, yes, the I run for them. Ones. Yeah. I mean, and they're frankly, they're harder to find. A lot of things are harder to find uh, in the United States. Like when we... When I go to a grocery store in many places around the world, um, it is an experience. But in the United States, I think we're just awakening to the fact that our grocery store shelves could have much, much better variety. You know, you mentioned as it related to uh, a lot of row crop agriculture that, you know, figuring out how to, in an economical way, deliver, deliver food meant delivering a small number of foods. And there wasn't a lot of diversity Mm -hmm. In what we are eating, you know, using robotic systems that allows you to achieve scale in a variety of different crops in a way that's economical also means that we can start oh. driving a diversity of what we see in the grocery store, which also just heightens the food experience. Wow. So the idea being that you could have five different types of strawberries and you could pick all of those and have them sorted by different sizes. If I like the small ones, great. If I wanted the giant ones because I wanted to dip them in chocolate, I could do that amazing opportunity to increase the diversity. Listen, thanks for letting me invest in the company. I'm still a shareholder. And, uh, you know, I'm really excited to uh, send these shares to the syndicate.com. It's the quickest turnaround we ever had. I, I'm, I'm under a year. And I, I don't want to say exactly the multiple, but a multiple our investment on one year. Um, but for me, uh, as the lead, I am going to get those shares and I'm holding them. Because I want to see where you take this. Um, I'm really, really excited. And, uh, you know, it was, it was for me, personally, very meaningful to be able to make this investment. And I couldn't be more happy that you found a partner to help scale it, and really make the entire, um, you know, infrastructure of our food and our ag better for our daughters and, and all kids out there. I mean, I think it's really not to again, to be sentimental, but, you know, it's like really nice to work on projects like this as an investor. And, um, or calm.com for meditation and well being or blockable for housing, you mentioned your passion for housing too. Like we could solve these problems, we could solve food, we could solve, you know, mental health, and we can solve housing. These are not beyond our reach. They're, they're actually, all the pieces are there. We, we just have so to, have the you have to, to implement. flip the script. You have to flip the script. 
you have to be excited when you hear these problems. When you realize that you have yes. a relevant skill set that can change the world, it should be energizing. And so right now, uh, I'm massively expanding uh, the technical team. I'm looking for, you know, I'm not looking for mercenaries. I'm looking for missionaries. I'm looking, yes. you know, if you are a scientist or an engineer, typically it means you're an optimist. You wanted to dedicate your mind to making the world a better place through the things that you built. And so right now I'm on a mission to hire up as many people that wanted to have an opportunity to apply their skills for good. We're ultimately figuring out whether or not a cell phone has just the right, you know, surface coating and rounded edge and that the app ecosystem for parking your car. I mean, these all are great yeah. and all, but the their relevance disappears unless we get the basics down, which is in this case, making sure that we have great food and that we're passing along a world that that everyone wants to live in. And here it is, folks, appharvest.com slash careers. Tons of jobs from a greenhouse operations specialist to growers, people ops packing <laughs> the vegetables if, and if technology. If you are, you know, if you if you can write code, if you can build robots, if data you can, scientists, machine data science, learning, cloud, um, architecture, scrum manager, so many great gigs embedded. You got to do hardware, you got to do software, you got to do everything. Well, we're what, hiring what for do? everything across the board. This is a great place for you to make a positive impact on the world. Go to appharvest.com slash careers. Stop trying to make the Facebook ads 0.07% more clickable to trick people into clicking on some dumb I, ads. I heard a great quote uh, from one of my investors, and he lamented the fact that the greatest minds of his generation spent their lives figuring out how to get people to click on a banner ad. Oh. Like all of the algorithms that a go into generation. that. And and we can do it differently. So that's that's the opportunity. That's what we need to get back to here is this optimism that we can solve the world's biggest problems and create abundance for everybody. Housing blockable, food app harvest, mental health calm. There are so many opportunities, space exploration, SpaceX, sustainable energy. Like, let's solve these world's problems. Stop with the goddamn ad network clicking, quit Facebook, quit Instagram, get the hell out of there. Take the bag, get all those RSUs, and go work for App Harvest right now. That's my message. All right, listen. Thanks for letting me invest in the company and uh, continued success. And uh, hey, maybe we could, uh, in a year from now, when you get a couple more of these up and running, we, we could do a little check-in. Would that be okay? That'd be fantastic. check-in pod? All right, great. Awesome. Listen, continued success. Again, thanks for letting me invest and letting our syndicate invest. If you want to invest in interesting companies, go to the syndicate.com and apply as an accredited investor. And I'm teaching Angel University to find great companies like this to invest in. I, I don't want to say exactly what we did, but we may have tripled our money in a year doing something really great for the world. And I'm holding my shares because I want to I think this could go 10 100x from here. I'm going long. Continued success and we'll see you all next time. Bye bye. <laughs>